2: Hello and welcome to the Game Day Premier League podcast from Talksport. With me, Sam Matterface, Dean Ashton, the former West Ham and England forward, and Talksports Alex Crook. Snow joke at the bridge as Chelsea caught in a blizzard. The Blues are hit by a first half flurry from City, whilst an Arsenal avalanche buries Big Sam's baggies at the Hawthorns,
1: where it was all white on the night. Arsenal come forward again. Teddy fires him into the area, and Lacazette makes it 4-0. A volley from almost underneath the crossbar and Arsenal here have been irresistible in the snow and West Bromwich Albion look bedraggled and without real changes real quickly they are heading straight back to the Championship Ole Ole Manchester United
2: goes second with a win over Villa Vardy and Madison put Leicester in the top three all the reviews of the weekend on the podcast with more composure than Semi Ajayi the game day Premier League pod from TalkSport This is Game Day. And a very big hello to Dean Ashton. How are you? OK? I'm great, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Good, you? Yeah, nice to see you again. Uh, we were together at Tottenham against Leeds and we'll get to that very shortly. Uh, Alex Crook is with us as well. Talk Sport Transfer Guru. Going to do a transfer roundup for us uh, in the next sort of uh, 15 minutes or so. Give us a teaser as to what we can expect. Uh,
3: we can expect a very Sam Allardyce signing on the horizon at West
2: Bromwich Albion. Ooh, there's a shock. Uh, Did you have a good weekend? Did you enjoy the football that you saw this weekend, Dean?
4: Uh, I did, yes. I think, obviously, I think some people may be worrying about starting to see maybe a lack of goals and maybe fatigue setting in with certain teams just trying to sit back and almost get through the games without losing, in a sense, but... Obviously, a few of the games really did bring some great great action and some great goals as well.
2: Out with the old and in with the new. That is the familiar saying at this time of year. Okay, need to Son and it's a brilliant finish. Down low, beyond Mellier, in at the near post. A wonderful Kane-Song combination again. A wonderful
4: bit of individual brilliance from Eberici Eze. Picks up the ball deep in his own half. Goes past one player, goes past two, goes past the whole Sheffield United side and then from outside the box hits his shot right-footed into the right bottom corner, out swinger.
3: Lewis Dunk with a header, and Lewis Dunk with the equaliser. Brighton complete the comeback in this second half. The corner from the right-hand side, on a plate for Lewis Dunk. Brighton three, Wolves three.
1: Snow is now settling on the playing surface here, and there could be issues soon for the pitch markings. Arsenal come forward again. He Fires it into the area, and Lacazette makes it four. From almost underneath the crossbar, and Arsenal here have been irresistible in the snow. And West Bromwich Albion look big draggles to go up to third. Newcastle stay in 15th place. It finished at St James's Park. Decent game in the end. Newcastle one,
0: Leicester City two. Chelsea nil, Manchester City three. You come to me just as Kevin De Bruyne turns in a fantastic goal. Set up by Raheem Sterling, who'd been one-on-one with Benjamin Mendy. City are scintillating here at the bridge. Chelsea nil, Manchester City three.
2: Chelsea beaten at home by three goals to one. Gundogan, Foden, uh, KDB scoring within 16 minutes of a, a first-half spell where they were absolutely devastating. I was expecting a Chelsea come out all guns blazing in the second half. That certainly didn't happen. I thought it was going to get a lot, lot worse for them. Uh, the consolation goal at the end of the game doesn't really mean too much. Uh, the pressure heaping heavily on Frank Lampard. And as we speak, there are lots of rumours circulating about how much scrutiny he is going to be under, Dean. And I mean, first of all, the performance itself, let's talk about that. How surprised were you that Chelsea
4: were that bad? I think it surprised me that they were that easy to play through considering that they would have known despite Manchester City maybe not hitting top form yet this season that they still are very good at playing through and especially without a centre forward they were clearly going to try and play um, little triangles interchanging interchanging a position so that surprised me that Chelsea allowed themselves to be that open Um, but I'm not quite on the bandwagon you're on, that was City at their best. They were magnificent. I thought every single player was right at it, right up for it. The quality was brilliant. And maybe it just shows how far Frank Lampard's team are away from the top sides when they're at their best.
2: Yeah, maybe that's the, the key point, isn't it? I mean, Jason Burt writing in The Telegraph, his first paragraph of match report says this, this was not so much a defeat as a destruction. The Premier League has been waiting with trepidation for this kind of signature performance from Manchester City. And here it was in all its brutal glory as they took Chelsea apart. And whatever the assurances over the manager's future shone the harshest light on Frank Lampard, Crook.
3: Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of the two. Manchester City were excellent, no question about that. And as Dean says, we have been waiting uh, for that kind of performance all season, really. And we've mentioned on the podcast in recent weeks that we felt they were just building up ahead of steam and that somebody would be on the end of a Manchester City masterclass. Maybe uh, we didn't necessarily expect it to come at Stamford Bridge. But I actually feel a bit sorry for Frank Lampard because I think he's been a dead man walking almost ever since he was given the open checkbook. Let's be brutally honest. The only reason that he got the job in the first place was because they were subject to a transfer embargo that limited the number of elite coaches that Chelsea could attract at that time. He was appealing because of his links to the young players and the ability to bring those players into the team, which he did very successfully last season, got them into the Champions League, probably overachieved on that basis. But now all of a sudden the pressure is different. He spent more than £200 million The new signings aren't really working out. Timo Werner, again, they're ineffective against Manchester City. Havertz, the same. And we know that Roman Abramovich is a brutal chairman. And actually, I think if he wasn't Frank Lampard, he would be under even more scrutiny and pressure from the powers that be than he is now. Because you look at his record of the managers that Abramovich has hired. Frank Lampard has taken fewer points per game than any of them. 1.67 points per game in his 55 matches that's fewer than Andre Villas-Boas that's fewer than Roberto Di Matteo Maurizio Sarri Luis Felipe Scolari Rafa Benitez the list goes on Roman Abramovich is not an owner who is renowned for his patience and I think the clock is ticking on Frank Lampard I, I don't see how he comes back from this
2: is that a little bit of an? Would that be a little bit of an overreaction? It's a slightly different time at Chelsea now. They don't pull the trigger as quickly as as they used to. But he has lost five of his last seventeen league games. They are eighth in the league. When Chelsea have started this badly in a season, they've only ever finished as high as six. And if that was going to be the case, if they did find themselves not being able to qualify for the Champions League, there would be no future, would there?
4: Think. I think Cro- Crooks uh, put the nail on the head in terms of. Roma Vranovic has opened his checkbook. He spent a lot of money on on uh, on players that a lot of teams were looking at uh, in the summer, and that's essentially, I think, most managers are judged. Especially when they ask for time, they're judged on the signings that they bring in, that they have an influence in in bringing in. So that's where I think the pressure really lies for Frank is is having brought in these players. Too many of them look lost. That there's there's certainly some good stories there with with certain players, but too many of the attacking players look a bit lost. And I thought the body language was a real poor indication um, in that second half when they were walking. I think there's another
3: problem here as well. We know that Frank Lampard was keen to trim the squad in the summer. Didn't manage to get out as many players as he wanted. There's a lot of players there who know they don't have a future under Frank Lampard. From what we hear, that's causing some problems behind the scenes. The discarded players are being quite vocal in their criticism of the manager. It's just not a great combination. It really isn't.
2: 18 shots on goal for Manchester City, six on target. They ended up only having 46% possession of the ball, but that's because they gave it to Chelsea in the second half to do what they wanted for the last half an hour because they'd already done uh, the job. Chelsea managed two shots on target in the game and one of those was the consolation goal from Callum Hudson-Odoi. Uh, but Chelsea have had a real bad turn in form. They've earned just eight points from their last eight Premier League games, and in their seven previous games before that run, they'd earned 15 points. But they, I think, the problem is the quality of opposition, isn't it? When you look at the the statistics that Chelsea post when they're playing teams that are also in the top eight, and then the statistics of uh, the the rest of the league, their their games against the rest of the teams in the league, it's pretty clear that they've been flat-track bullies up until. At uh, this point, how does he rectify the situation? Can he rectify the situation, Dean? Because I don't think, because as all, Crook has already pointed out, they they have such a large squad that he can't really justify turning around and saying, give me more players because he hasn't integrated the ones that, that he has bought in with any great degree of success up until this point.
4: No, and I wonder whether he, I don't know, feels the pressure to bring in players maybe feels like he can trust to to put in some sort of performance, a more robust performance, and whether he wants to uh, maybe eat a bit of humble pie in that sense. I think that is what man management's about, is about making big decisions, bringing in players that maybe you thought you weren't going to use to put pressure on others. I think that's key. But also, it was something that was... You know, uh, looked at when he was at Derby was they they do they will always play great football, but defensively they were poor. Derby very poor, and that hasn't been rectified yet at, at Chelsea. I think the back two have looked better, but the way that Manchester City carved them open in in wide areas, they they look poor. Both Chilwell and Aspalacueta look way off it um, in terms of defensively one v one and and being played round 1-2 So that's a big issue defensively for Chelsea. One of the major issues for Chelsea is the fact that Timo Werner
2: hasn't really delivered on what was promised. It's his 12th appearance in a row now without a goal in all competitions. Uh, He's only ever actually gone on two longer goalless runs during his entire top flight career. Uh, They were six and a half, no, seven years ago uh, when he went 23 games without a goal in January 2014 to October 2014 but he was about five at the time Uh, and uh, between uh, December 14 and September 15 both when he was a Stuttgart player and I don't even think they were in the top flight he was still such a a young boy at that moment so this is probably the most significant drought of his uh, career and whether or not that can be rectified I suppose, is in the lap of the gods. It's a worrying time because Chelsea have Morecambe in the FA Cup, then they have Fulham, uh, and it's not too uh, long away that they will face Jose Mourinho and Tottenham Hotspur on the 3rd of February. Circle that date in your diary. Uh, right, let's uh, just have a quick word about the other big story of Sunday. And that was, yet another Manchester City player testing positive for COVID-19 in Eric Garcia. I made a list earlier on with Garcia, Ake, Jesus, Walker, Edison and Ferran Torres. Six players uh, were unavailable to Pep Guardiola. Imagine what would have happened if it had a full-strength squad. Um, But I suppose that actually is a damning indictment of what Chelsea produced today. The fact that they could have six players unavailable Manchester City and still uh, destroy them as they did. But worryingly that the number of cases that are, are affecting matches are going through the roof, Alex.
3: Yeah, and I wonder what those Manchester City players that you've just listed will have made of Benjamin Mendy's antics um, when they emerged in the papers on Sunday morning. I have to say the Premier League need to get a grip of this now because we've seen some some of the punishments handed out. Edinson Cavani given a three-match ban for comments that he made on social media, comments that he claims were innocent. Obviously, we know the context in this country is very different and probably there was no choice but to ban him. But surely now some kind of... Sanctions need to come in from the Premier League to players who breach COVID-19 regulations. We saw those Tottenham players mingling with West Ham players at a a festive party. We saw images on on social media of Mitrovic um, doing stuff that he wasn't supposed to do uh, with Milivojevic. I mean, A, how stupid do you need to be for those pitches to get out into the public domain in the first place? But B, I think the Premier League need to take a breath of this situation now because we know they're doing all they can clubs to keep players safe uh, at the training ground, in a sanitized environment, on a match day, but they can't clearly keep them under lock and key. And, and what they get up to in their own time at the moment seems to be their own business. And it doesn't, doesn't fit right with me. The, the Premier League need to start dishing out some fines and some suspensions.
0: Ready to pop the question?
2: Between Tottenham and Leeds United. Uh, Dean and I were there, and it was a corker. Welcome to Talksport and welcome to the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, this regal arena in the north of London. Click, edge of the area, exchanges passes with Alyoski inside the area and he slams it into the side netting with an excellent volley. Little back heel into Son, inside the box, wants to square it to Dier, doesn't, finds Kane instead and he hits it over the top into Alderweireld, comes back towards Oybier who shoots from the edge of the box. And it's straight down the throat of the goalkeeper. Here they come with Winks picking the ball off the defender. And then Alioski has fouled Bergvine inside the box. And that's going to be a penalty. Harry Kane has scored his last 15 penalties in all competitions. He steps up right-footed down the middle and scores for Tottenham. New Year, same old Harry Kane. Square on to Harrison who tries a bender towards the left corner. And flying towards the top of the crossbar was Hugo Lloris who wasn't going to get there. Kane into and it's a brilliant finish down low beyond Melier in at the near post a wonderful kane son combination again here's Son in towards the near post oh that's a great header and it's in it's in from Alderweireld, smuggled behind the line, Mellier trying to keep it out, Tottenham three, leads nil. Bergvall, who's in behind, goes past the defender, slams it towards goal, it's a good save by Mellier. Doherty, who's gone wiring in on this near side, and it's going to be a red car for Doherty for a foul on Pablo Hernandez. 2021 starts with a Premier League victory for Spurs, they've beaten Leeds by three goals to nil. 3-0 to Tottenham Hotspur in the end. And I was pretty confident that Tottenham were going to come away with all three points, as I mentioned on the preview podcast, because I believe, Dean, right from the very start, that the way Bielsa sets up his team and the way they operate, Jose Mourinho would see that as almost playing into his hands. And so it proved.
4: Yeah, and he even mentioned it after the game, saying how they play a very obvious way, but it's, it is hard to stop. But clearly he understood exactly where them gaps were going to be left. How his team needed to set up and he did with Winks and Huyberg sitting and doing a doing a great job but I did come away afterwards and I I did check the stats because I thought was it was it a three was it a three nil game because you know as we saw early on Leeds were great and second half Leeds were Leeds were superb and actually they had way more possession 63 percent a better pass success rate than Tottenham did so I think if you're a Leeds fan anyway you would come away and say well We've been carved open quite easily and lost the game quite easily. But actually, it's another good performance. It probably clouded over, I think, Tottenham's performance on the day where I thought they defended actually very well.
2: Yeah, I think that's their modus operandi, isn't it? I mean, I think we mentioned on the uh, podcast going into the game, about expected goals. That became quite a big sort of talking point. I did the same as you, went back and looked at the stats and the expected goals for yesterday were Tottenham 2.53, Leeds 1.16. And I think that gives a greater reflection. It's slightly tighter than the 3-0 scoreline uh, suggests. But ultimately, Tottenham did create the better chances in the game and could have scored more, actually, if they'd been at their their ruthless best. Leeds weren't ruthless at all and that was a big problem because they did get chances but didn't take them, Alex.
3: Yeah, and I guess that highlights the, uh, the gap in quality uh, when you come up against a team like Tottenham with the creative talents of Son and the predatory instincts of, of Harry Kane, that if you're not at your best in front of goal, then nine times out of ten, you're probably going to lose the game. I'm sort of torn here because I think it's laudable the way Leeds have approached the, the Premier League and... Um, haven't adapted their style regardless of the opposition but it does mean they're going to suffer one or two heavy defeats and we've seen that recently and I suppose if you're a Leeds fan after 16 years away you could almost accept that because your team are earning plenty of plaudits they're not going down they are good to watch but you just have to resign yourself that some some days you are just going to get
2: outshot and that's what happened at the weekend. Yeah, I mean, Leeds United, I think it'll be fine next season. They'll be back in the Premier League. There's not going to be any issue about that. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur, they needed that victory after um, going through December with a little bit of pain. It was their first win since the 6th of December. It lists them to third in the table or did do uh, prior to Sunday's games. And then Leicester City jumped above them. Uh, and then Jose Mourinho needed that. But he's got a helping hand again from Kane and Son, whose partnership working in tandem is, is more than impressive. I mean, When you bear in mind that the record number of assists and goals together, a a combination of two players creating goals and scoring goals together, is 13 over a 36-game period for Sutton and Shearer in the early 90s. And the fact that Son and Kane have created or scored 13 goals for one another over the course of just 16 games, I mean, that is absolutely outstanding. Dean, have you ever had a partner... Not like that, because no one has, but who you knew would be in a certain area in the penalty area as soon as you got there or knew where to find and how to find you.
4: Well, I would say I'd say, yeah, most of my partners, because we worked on it and and I played in a front two pretty much my whole career. And it was something that we worked on continuously. But that's what's so impressive now. If you looked, if you talk about Sutton and Shearer, they played as a two. So yeah. they're up there, they're flicking it on for each other, they're they're right in the box together. Whereas Harry Kane and, and Son, you know, they don't. One plays one plays through the middle, one plays wide, very wide at times. So for them to combine the way they have done in the positions that they're playing, I think it's just a huge amount of credit to both players who are class. But they clearly just have a great relationship in terms of probably on and off the field, but also in terms of, you know, knowing exactly what each other's going to do. You know, almost telepathically knowing exactly where the, where the, uh, the other player is going to go and, and where he, where he favours. So that's what's impressive.
2: Uh, Harry Kane now scored against all 30 opponents that he's faced in the Premier League, the best 100% record in the competition among players to have faced more than one side. And um, Let's talk about the, uh, the penalty that started things off. Um, inside, outside or neither of those two, Alex? I, I don't know, to be honest i don 't have a, a, a conclusive opinion, I suppose the fact that they didn 't overturn it means that it must have been or there must have been some contact at least on the line because they would have used the the, the Hawkeye mapping system that they use for offside to, to to work out the geography because geography is a matter of fact, um, so yeah, I, I mean it must have been at least on the line. it was a penalty wasn 't it I mean it was a clumsy yeah. challenge
3: yes, it was yeah yeah, no, no question about that so and, and based on what you 're saying you said before on this podcast that uh, matters of geography are not subject to that clear and obvious uh, regulation. Then, therefore, you have to say it, it was on the line, and therefore it was a penalty kick, and, and that gave Tottenham the platform to go on and pick up all three points. I think they'd have won the game anyway. To be honest.
2: Okay, uh, let's crack on because we've got loads to get through, including a look ahead to Southampton against Liverpool. And going back to the sort of COVID news, really, I suppose that struck Southampton with Alex McCarthy being ruled out of this game. What difference would that make, Alex? I think a big
3: difference. Um, uh, McCarthy has been somebody that I've been advocating for a place in in Gareth Southgate's plans. I think he's had an excellent season. Um, A a late bloomer in some ways. And I think until this season... There were a lot of Southampton fans who weren't completely convinced by him, but he's been, been a major part of their success. They've tightened up defensively and he's been the fulcrum of that. Fraser Forster comes in, hasn't played a meaningful game in the Premier League for Southampton since December 2017. He did play a game um, at the back end of the 2018-19 season, but it was a dead rubber effectively away from home when they were already safe. It was just to give him a run out really, along with some, some young players. So, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how Liverpool try and exploit that and a new goalkeeper, no Yannick Vestergaard either. He's still sidelined. So Southampton without two of their first choice back five and probably Liverpool with Salah and Firmino and Mane aren't the team that you want to come up against in those circumstances. But the flip side will be as a chance for Fraser
2: Forster to, to prove that he can still do it in the premier league. Um, Liverpool, Obviously, we'll be looking at the Premier League table we would have noticed the Premier League table, Dean, and seen that Manchester United have crept up onto their shoulder in the last uh, 48 hours or so. Um, will that sort of put them under any more pressure? They're, they're sort of not used to being hunted like this. Last year was so much of a stroll that no one ever got within touching distance of them. All of a sudden, you know, Manchester United are able to tug at the back of
4: their shirt. No, but I almost think it's, better for them that it's Manchester United I think Jurgen Klopp will use it to his advantage and he'll really fire the players up and try and talk about the history of the two clubs and what it'll mean for the supporters to make sure that they keep Manchester United at bay um, and and I think if it was any other team I don't think it would matter quite as much um, I, I do believe that so I think he'll he'll use that to his advantage and obviously he's starting to get players back albeit they uh, they still got absentees at the back, but um, Tiago came on and looked yeah. absolutely ridiculous um, in the last game. So I would expect him to start this game and uh, and for them to control the majority of the game.
2: Christmas has come and gone, the January sales are open and the trading of players in the Premier League and beyond is available to managers up and down the land once again. I don't know how much spending is going to go on, but I'm sure there'll be a few loans over this period. Alex Crook is the TalkSport transfer guru. Uh, Let's fire some names at you. Um, Lots to talk about Sammy Kadira. Where's he going?
3: Yeah, this one seems to be gathering pace um, over the course of the weekend. Everton have actually held talks uh, with Sami Kadira Of course, there is a link there, Carlo Ancelotti, his manager at Real Madrid. Tottenham have also been mentioned. I know Kadira has spoken glowingly in the past about his relationship with Jose Mourinho as well. So perhaps they may try and come in and hijack it. I think the big stumbling block is his wages, which have been reported as £184,000 a week. Now I know Everton's owners have shown they have deep pockets over the course of the last few transfer windows, but with Everton well stocked in that midfield area as well, I would imagine they will have to shift some players on before they're willing to sign that kind of paycheck. He's 33 as well. So it does beg the question, does he improve the Everton side? He's got incredible experience. He's won just about all there is to winning the game. Is he what they need at this moment in time? I'm not entirely convinced for that kind of money.
4: Yeah. Um, Tell us about the the two Manchester United players that Brighton are looking at.
3: Yeah, I think as in previous January transfer windows, it will be the teams at the bottom of the Premier League that are going to be the most active, certainly in terms of numbers and, and Brighton uh, very much count amongst that list. They're three points clear of the relegation places, but Fulham, of course, have games in hands. The two players that were mentioned to me at the Amex at the weekend were Sergio Romero, uh, the goalkeeper, of course, who was desperate to leave in the October window. Took it quite badly that Manchester United blocked a move to Everton. My understanding is they would be willing to let him join Brighton, who aren't seen as a Premier League rival. I think that'd be a good signing for, for Brighton. I'm not convinced by Robert Sanchez and clearly Matty Ryan is not the answer. Graham Potter has made that abundantly obvious and the other player and this is an interesting one Dan James of course who played under Graham Potter at Swansea they adore each other I'm just not convinced that Manchester United will be willing to let him go I think he's a player that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sees as an impact sub someone to come on and stretch defences and provide an outlet like he did against Aston Villa when perhaps they were holding on to a lead. So I think Romero, probably the
2: more likely the two at this stage. When you say they adore each other, I mean, how do you know that? Have you read the love letters between the two of them? Have you intercepted text messages? How do you know that they adore one another?
3: It's been voiced to me before by people who know just how much respect Graham Potter has for Dan James as a player and how much Dan James attributes his success and his meteoric rise, really, when you think about it, down to Potter's coaching.
2: Well, oh, you're having a door, though. I mean, a door is quite sort of romantic, isn't it?
0: <laughs> uh,
2: I, I just thought I'd chuck in a different yeah, yeah, terminology. It again. Yeah. It's, not as good, it's not as good as the word of the weekend, which uh, Dean threw in during commentary on Saturday, uh, which was boink. He boinked the ball. I quite like that. I like it. I, I like, like it. it. I did good.
4: have to check that it was a word or whether it was just, <laughs> whether it was just something that was used in the really early Batman um, <laughs> program when they used to. Straight play. after Kapow. Exactly, yeah.
2: Um, but talking of Kapow, um Mamadou Sako's, uh executed a few Kapows in his time, and he looks as if he's uh, going to uh, link up with an old pal in Bank Big Sam.
3: Very good. I see what you did there. Is this the most Big Sam signing ever? Actually, there's two, because he also wants Czech Tosin from Everton. and There were two players in the Premier League that you were going to put in a team managed by Sam Allardyce. Then those two would be very high on the list. Uh, Crystal Palace willing to let Sacco go. He's out of contract in the summer. Has barely featured this season. Four Premier League appearances. None since October. They'd be willing to get him off the wage bill. Tosin is a player who has been coming on late in games for Everton and we know they're not particularly well stocked there in terms of backup to Calvert-Lewin so he might be a more difficult one to get over the line but I think Sacco to West Brom has a very good chance of happening between now and the end of the window.
1: Tierney. Bobs and weaves down the left-hand side for Arsenal. Breaks into the penalty area. Curls in the right-footed shot. That is an outstanding goal by Kieran Tierney. Here is Saka again. Lacazette with an excellent ball into the penalty area. Cut across by Smith-Rowe and turned in by Bakayo Saka. And that is an outstanding Arsenal goal. The youngsters involved, it pinged around the West Brom penalty area and the baggies simply couldn't live with them. Pereira is onside, inside the penalty area, goes for goal, he's hit the far post, it comes out to Robinson and he fires the ball in, but the flag is oh. up for offside. High into the penalty area, oh, it's almost an own goal, and then Smith-Rowe drives it and it's blocked, and Lacazette does turn the rebound in. Arsenal come forward again, he fires it into the area, and Lacazette makes it 4-0 a volley from almost underneath the crossbar and Arsenal here have been irresistible in the snow and West Bromwich Albion look bedraggled and without real changes, real quickly they are heading straight back to the Championship Six games
2: still to reflect on as we review the Premier League action from the weekend. Let's go to the Hawthorns and try and um, find our way through the snow and pick the bones uh, apart in that West Albion performance. You mentioned uh, in the transfer roundup that uh, Mamadou Sakho could well be on his way to uh, the Hawthorns and boy, do they need to... Uh, uh, beef up their defence, Dean Ashton, because as good as Arsenal were on Saturday night, and they were good and they deserve credit for the way they performed, especially the younger players. I thought West Bromwich Albion looked as if they'd checked out halfway through that second half.
4: Yeah, big time. Yeah, I think look, it's very difficult when you're down. I've been in that sort of position um, and it's difficult within a squad unit when Results are as bad as as they have been um, to keep morale high and to keep yourself in games once you're two or three nil down. Um, But I just think the big issue is that can he bring in enough players that he wants? I I don't think so. I think he's he's talked after the game about it has to be clean sheets. Clean sheets are the only way that this team are going to stay in the Premier League. But I'm not sure he's going to be able to bring in enough players to change around that side. And, and give enough quality because, look, they're a championship side. They haven't brought in players. You know, Carlham Grant is a effectively a championship striker as well that they brought in. So I, it, I think it's going to be his toughest job, but he's done it before. I think this January window is going to be massive, absolutely massive for him and that club.
2: Uh, Arsenal, um, I thought the goals were great, weren't they? I mean, Tierney's goal was really good, cutting on his right foot, brilliant finish for a guy who's played particularly well since he's come back from injury. Saka's goal was was excellent. It was the end of a, a very, very good move. It was a sort of an Arsenal move from back in the old days, wasn't it? Lots of third man movement, one touch, uh, very slick and stylish. And I suppose Mikel Arteta would point to that as a massive improvement in the way that they have uh, have started to play, but things aren't always going to go as smoothly as this. That they're not always going to be playing Brighton and West Brom and Jalby. and bearing in mind that Brighton rested half their decent players in the game down at the Amex and and, and they only come away with a one-nil victory. And then um the West Brom game, obviously they're up against the team that are struggling. Things aren't always gonna go as smoothly for Mikel Arteta. So what he's got to do now, I suppose, is stick with those players that have done so well for him, those younger players that have been so creative and more reliable than some of the more experienced uh, staff members. Crook. If things do go wrong, he's got to put his faith in them.
3: Yeah, because they've stood up and counted and... Um dug him out of a fairly big hole. Uh, certainly, Mikel Arteta looks on a much more stable footing now than he did a couple of weeks ago. And he's got the young players to thank that. I thought Smith-Rowe, in particular, in that number 10 role, uh, confirmed by Mesut Ozil on Twitter, uh, <laughs> has really uh, come to the fore. And, and he was excellent. We're big fans on this podcast of Saka anyway. I think Lacazette, actually, as well, with his two goals and the, the leadership that he's shown in the last few weeks seems to be reveling in in almost being Arsenal's main man because Aubameyang still can't score a goal for love nor money and had a (laughs) couple of opportunities to do so in that second half that the Aubameyang of last season would have dispatched with the minimum of fuss. So he still needs to find a way to get him firing again. Tierney has become a bit of a beacon of hope for Arsenal fans. They see him as a future captain and that's not just because he turns up on a snowy night at West Bromwich Albion and refuses to wear a tracksuit top or any tracksuit bottoms. But I think he's become a, a really solid Premier League player. But, but you're right, they're not going to play West Brom every week. I think they've got Manchester United at the end of the month and we'll probably know a lot more about Arsenal and this newfound
2: hope at the end of that game. I, I, I am someone who hates the cold um, and I regularly dress up in order to ensure that the cold affects me as little as possible. So I'm, I'm all for the under armour and the thermal underwear and the heated jackets and the, the little things that you break and put in your shoes to keep your toes alive. Um, but I thought it was quite interesting on Saturday night to see Kieran Tierney uh, stand there in a pair of short shorts, his football stockings, and a t-shirt, whilst Ainsley Maitland-Niles basically wore a morph suit underneath his football kit. I mean, you know, if you're if you're Ainsley, no one would have batted an eyelid if he hadn't have just been passed by Kieran Tierney, who was wearing clothes akin to what he would take to the beach in the summer. I mean, you know, it was it was so so highlighted, such a contrast between the two. Poor old Ainsley getting trolled relentlessly on Twitter as a result of it.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, I think, I don't think he's trying to. It's not like he's showing off Tierney. I just think that is what he's, that is what he was obviously, he was, he was shown, wasn't he, bringing just his stuff in a, in a supermarket carrier bag to a, to a game. But I just think he epitomised what Arsenal needed. And also, they're now, um, got the joint most away clean sheets in the Premier League this season, which I think says a lot. And it also, Rob Holdings played in every single one of those away clean sheets and his, his uh, partnership with Pablo Mari, I thought, looked very good. Dare I say, a strong, confident backline for Arsenal. And I think, I know that the, the the other attacking players will get a lot of plaudits, but I just think that backline has has actually probably been better than people have given credit for at times. Uh, Tierney
2: also became the first Scottish player to score an away Premier League goal for Arsenal. Uh, and the first to do so in the top flight since Charlie Nicholas, Champagne Charlie Nicholas, against Ipswich Town in March 1986. It's different days, though, really, isn't it? Because in the 80s, all of the, uh, the, the sort of the players that weren't English that came into the Premier League or the top flight were were from Scotland. Uh, and now it's a very much a multicultural universe of players. Uh, Lacazette, I thought, did well. Scored a, a, a very good pair of goals. Um, towards the end of the match and he was a, a constant thorn in the West Bromwich Albion side as well. Uh, if they can get him in goal-scoring positions, he will convert chances, won't he?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, he is a, a proven goal-scorer at the very highest level, lost his way a bit, probably wanted to leave um, in the last transfer window and I think that had a detrimental effect to the way that he started the season. But as I say, since he's been Asked to lead the line and and almost fill the goal-scoring void left by Aubameyang's alarming dip in form. I think he's really embraced the challenge. I still think he'll probably leave next summer, though.
2: What do you give in terms of
4: percentage chance of West Brom staying up, Dean? Probably 15% right now. But if you ask me at the end of the window, depending on who Big Sam has brought in, because he wouldn't have taken that job unless they're going to allow him to bring his own players in. And I'm expecting three, four, possibly five, if he can shuffle a few is that, players. Is that around. enough? I think five, if he could bring in five players, I think he could then mould the rest around a very defensive-minded team that can maybe counter-attack. And
2: he says that's the process as well, doesn't he? Because he, he points to the Liverpool performance and the Manchester City performance as the two sort of barometers of how his team can perform so he thinks that that's the way forward because they've already shown that they can do it so that that's how you sort of build a a team from there is that the right approach
4: I don't know maybe in the back of his mind he's still got the fact that people criticise him for his style of play whether he's got that in his mind and he thought against Liverpool all right we're just going to play this way but against so-called lesser sides we have to go and try and attack and we have to try and play some football. I, I don't think so. I think he's got to try and stick to what he knows best, make them horrible to watch. Just make them really horrible to watch, defend well, and see if they can creep their way out of the situation they're in. They were pretty horrible to
2: watch on uh, Saturday night, really, if you're a West Bromwich Albion fan. Uh, poor old but- she- Shemi Ajayi uh, trying to score an own goal and then attempting to clear from inside his penalty area after missing the own goal and hitting the, the woodwork. Um, yeah, that
3: was, that was an incredible moment, wasn't it? I, I think 15% is optimistic. Um, is it eight points they've got? West Bromwich Albion, no team at this stage of a season with only eight points has ever survived in the Premier League. I mean, unless Big Sam is, is going to sign Haaland, Messi, De Bruyne and Fernandes, it could bring in 11 players,
2: they're still going down. Poor old Big Sam. Uh, yeah, I, I was like you, Dean. I thought he must have been promised loads of funds if he was going to take this job. But actually, I think after listening to him talk, it, it's more that he had been out of the game for so long. He felt if he didn't get back in soon, he would never get another chance again. And I almost felt that you know, he might well have been promised certain things if, if they stay up or he may well have been promised a few uh, little trades in the January transfer window. But I don't think it's going to be one of those situations like he had at Sunderland where he was able to pick and choose the five or six players that he wanted and, and and pay decent money for them. I think it's slightly different this time around. But we shall see. Good luck to West Bromwich Albion. And uh, let's move on to uh, another game where the team involved have got a very low percentage chance of staying in the Premier League. Crystal Palace beat Sheffield United by two goals to nil. If 15% is optimistic for uh, West Bromwich Albion, Dean, according to Crook, what, what are you giving Sheffield United? It probably starts with a naught no point point something (laughs) uh yeah because they're, they're two points from 17 games i mean that is that's a real worry isn't it i mean i can't remember the last team that hadn't won a premier league game by this stage of the season
4: it's a sad indictment really of a team that actually played so very very well well actually there hasn't been a team that have not won a premier league game after this amount of games at the start of a a season and and I think that's why I think they feel the pressure of relegation already. Mm. Yeah the
2: last team to fail to win any of their first 17 games in a season in the English top flight was Bolton Wanderers in 1902-03. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, you're right. It is a new Premier League record for Sheffield United, but uh, it has been done before. before. Uh, was Big Sam in charge of Bolton Wanderers back then? I'm not entirely sure. I don't think so. Uh, I think he was brought in to save them at the end of that season. <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: and, and, he, and he signed <laughs> Chenk Tosin and uh, Mamadou Sakho. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he probably did. Sammy Lee was still the assistant. Uh, right, okay. Crystal Palace, Eze's goal. We've got to mention that. It was Gapsu cracker, wasn't it? it was
3: um and i don't want to take anything away from him but if we're but talking about it, you? well, if we it. <laughs> if, if we're talking about Shefford united being doomed the way that they just parted like the red sea i mean one of their players was interviewed on match of the day on saturday night and said Somebody should have kicked him. I mean, absolutely right. Somebody should have kicked him. And and that would be a worry for me that they just didn't seem to have the desire or the determination to stop him in his tracks but take nothing away from from Eze. It was a, a wonderful run, a, a cool finish. And he's been one of the stars of the season quietly. He's done so well for Crystal Palace and injected a, a bit of dynamism into a team that was crying out for it.
2: We will have our Manchester United discussion in just a second. And we've got to talk about Leicester City as well because they played... Uh, relatively well for about mm, 75 minutes against Newcastle before conceding that late goal uh, to Andy Carroll but first let's touch on Everton against West Ham and when I mean when I say touch on I mean literally well this will take us a minute because the game was very uninspiring
4: Dean. even the goal was horrible wasn't it I mean (laughs) well not for Thomas Suchek but, I mean, what a signing he's been since he's, since he's come in. Um, you know, I thought his interview was brilliant, talking about the fact that he's normally um, enjoying time off and, and eating plenty of lovely food, whereas at the moment, obviously, in England, he's having to grind out performances and, and keep scoring goals. And it's another um, impressive away performance from from West Ham who, look, the game wasn't poor, but it's the sort of game they would have certainly drew or lost, in the past and I think that's that's the big change for the team
2: you say lovely food but he did cite potato salad as what he would be eating a lot of over the Christmas period usually I'm not entirely sure that potato salad would be top of my list wasn't in my fridge. <laughs> Put it that way. There's nothing uh, with the word salad in your fridge,
3: <laughs> Hey, hey, hey. I bet David Moyes is not much of a salad man either, by the way. Um, eight games David Moyes has lost since he came in for his second spell at London Stadium. That is a, a remarkable record. Um, and you have to give him credit. West Ham, look, a well-drilled machine now. It wasn't a surprise that they went there and, and stifled the life out of Everton and then nicked a goal themselves. But I think, once again, it does highlight that any delusions that Everton fans had that their team could mount any kind of top four challenge this season. The squad's just not deep enough. If they qualify for the Europa League, I think they will have done well given the level of competition at the top end of the table this season.
2: You commentated, uh, Crook, on Brighton 3, Wolverhampton Wanderers 3. This was a sensational football match in terms of entertainment, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, um, surprisingly so. Um, when you look at the fact that a lot of games between Wolves and Brighton in recent seasons have ended nil-nil and, and, and one nil. In fact, the last game I covered before the f- first lockdown was Wolves nil, Brighton nil at Molyneux. It was absolutely dreadful. But this was the complete opposite, mainly because you've got two teams who can't defend crosses and set pieces. And um, that, that made for an unexpected goal fest. I thought Wolves were great in the first half. Uh, Neves and Gia Martino ran the show in midfield, deserved to be in the ascendancy. And you, you just couldn't see a way, a way back for Brighton. They gave away a really cheap penalty at the start of the second half. Wolves, and you have to give... Credit to Brighton for the character they did show to get back into the game and, and actually I annoyed Graham Potter afterwards uh, when I suggested that maybe he would be pleased that Neil Mopay and Aaron Connolly have gotten the score sheet because it hasn't happened too often recently and he said that was a medium myth and actually they're 14th in the table in terms of goals scored. Maybe you can tell us if he's right or not but listen, what isn't a myth... Is the Brighton need to start winning games especially at home 13 home games without a win now in the Premier League that's a club
2: record they're actually 13th in terms of uh, goals scored in the league um, their expected goals which I think uh, Dean and I touched on earlier in the, uh, in, the in our commentary I think on uh, Saturday uh, is actually quite impressive 25.75 which is up there with well, it's better than Tottenham and it's only uh, a couple of goals shy of, I uh, expect that it's just about as good as Leicester City and just below uh, Leeds and Manchester United in terms of expected goals. But they are underperforming on that quite severely. Uh, so sort of highlights your point that Mopé and Connolly are not taking uh, their chances. I thought when you said you were going to upset uh, Graham Potter, I thought you were going to tell him that Dan James had uh, fluffed his eyelids at at somebody else. Um, hey! <laughs> I bet he wished Dan Byrne had in that first half. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, penalties again, obviously, uh, uh, there's always penalties, but less penalties probably this week than there have been, especially controversial ones, Dean. Uh, but uh, what happened to Wanderers, they scored three goals at the weekend. And, and this was a, an issue that sort of... They, Darren Lewis and I had on, on, on Thursday's podcast where we talked about Wolves not creating enough chances or, or scoring enough goals. We spoke about the expected goals that um, uh, Brighton have offered up so far this season. But Wolverhampton Wanderers are right down the, the bottom end with the likes of Sheffield United, Newcastle and Burnley in terms of uh, expected goals in the table because they don't create that many chances. From set pieces, he scored a couple of goals as he did in this game. But the other goals that they scored, we're an own goal from from Dan Byrne and a penalty. So again, in terms of creating opportunities, I don't think there's enough of that, and I think they've got they've got to sort that out in the transfer window.
4: Yeah, I agree. I think obviously, it's anyone can see that Jimenez is always going to be going to be a miss because of how much of a focal point he is in that side, and people running off him. Um, and, and Fabio Silva's a bit young to take on that responsibility yet. I think there is a really good player there, although. Um, but I've never, I've never thought to myself, Wolves are a are a free flowing side. But I've always thought they just they they rarely concede. I've always thought that back three with the two wing backs, two um, sort of holding ball playing midfield players. I've never really thought them about being a, a, a goal scoring team, but. You know, he's having to, you know, got rid of Doherty. Johnny's injured. Other players have been injured in that back three. He's tried to play a back four. I think that's the big issue. They've struggled to keep clean sheets this season. And that's been the big difference for me. It's not necessarily the lack of impotence up front because, you know, they've got some really good, stylish attacking players.
2: Let's move on to uh, the final game that we haven't looked at yet, which is Manchester United against Aston Villa. And it was the game where Manchester United went level on points with Liverpool. And after all that moaning and grumbling about how bad Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, the big crookie truck went into reverse There's a chance now that we can win the league. The text messages were flowing on fire. I'm not sure I
3: said that. I'm not sure I said that.
2: There is is documentary evidence of you suggesting now that there is a real chance of a special season for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It's funny how things turn so quickly, isn't it? I mean... I, I think
3: what I actually said was, can you imagine if Manchester United win the league this season? Because, let's be honest... They lost 6-1 at home to Tottenham. They got knocked out of a Champions League group that they had in the palm of their hand. There have been other shocking performances along the way, but somehow uh, in that adversity, they seem to have turned a corner, but they're beating teams that you would expect them to beat. They've got Manchester City in the cup in midweek, and we saw what Manchester City did to Chelsea on Sunday. They've got Liverpool in their next Premier League game. If they come through those two unscathed, then I might just start to believe. But I, I still don't think they're the, the finished article. They were hanging on at the end against Aston Villa. Took a terrific block from Eric Bae to, to see out the victory. And actually, Bailly played really well um, on New Year's Day. And if they can keep him fit, I think he will improve the team. They're still heavily reliant on Bruno Fernandes. Marcel scored second goal in 12 games, I think. Still needs to find the net on a more regular basis. I still think it's a big ask. But listen, I'm not going to complain. They're joint top on. But I'm not going to say they're joint top because Adrian Durham doesn't like it. They're well, level they aren't on points joint top. They're, they're, because
2: if, they, if it finished today, they wouldn't win the league, would they? So, they're, so not they're, joint they're, top.
3: they're They're level on points with Liverpool, and we couldn't have expected that when they were fifteenth on you November the first. You couldn't. I told you
2: to remain. Nobody, should. Should.
3: Nobody did. Nobody. Did. Patient.
2: I said to you. you. Just didn't. You didn't listen, did you? I mean, but on Eric Biy, I mean, he has. He's very good defensively. He reads the game very well. Eighty-five percent of the time. And then for some unknown reason, he has some sort of red mist that descends upon him and he has to dive in with sort of like his limbs spread out like a spider and take someone out and, and get a, either an unfortunate yellow card or a very, very deserved red card. I promise you now, if he stays in the team, there will be a situation where he gets sent off in the next two months. It will, it will happen because he's too rash.
4: Yeah, I think... I think it was. I, like Alex said. I thought it, his performance was excellent. Um, that's been a couple of performances that I have thought he's looked calmer, um, made better decisions, and that's that's what it's going to be down to. I think um, his positioning's pretty good. Um, he clearly's got the attributes to get himself out of trouble uh, when he's one v one against players. Um, he rarely gets beat. But you're right. It's the, it's the decision making. It's the calmness. Uh, you know, I always think about about it as a, as a forward. It's it's when I'm in a an attacking position, it's about being calm. And I think the defence has got to be exactly the same. The best defenders I've played against have really had that calmness about them and rarely let themselves get flustered. And I just wonder whether it's... Maybe it's going to take a real long run in the team for him because of the injuries that he's had. Maybe he just needs that run of games to maybe settle himself in to a partnership. I think we should also pay tribute to Aston Villa and the job that um, Dean
2: Smith and John Terry and others have done there. I don't know whether or not, maybe I'm being a bit of a cynic here, uh, that Jose Mourinho is, is lining something up for their meeting in the next couple of weeks. But he keeps telling us how good he thinks Aston Villa are. Do you think that sort of mind games that he's starting early or is it because actually he believes, like the rest of us, that Aston Villa have surprised most of us with their with their level of consistency more than anything else? I mean, they lost against Manchester United, but they could quite easily have walked away with a point from that game.
3: Yeah, Grealish was excellent. And... Uh... <laughs> Maybe that was an audition because he's been linked with Manchester United, but probably Jose is telling you that because he's coming up with some kind of defensive masterclass so that when they turn Aston Villa over, he can say to you afterwards, see, I told you they were a good side. Good win, that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we we scored after three minutes and then put 11 men behind the ball for the following 96. Um, Yeah, look, I mean, I just think that they're, they're a good team and they've done very well defensively. Obviously, they conceded what was a debatable penalty in that game. Have we got any sort of strong feelings on that, Dean?
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm sick of seeing these sort of penalties. I Me think too. I'm with you. The, the thing that I cannot understand is how the referees, whether it was the referee on the pitch who, if he went to look at the monitor or he was allowed to look at the monitor, wouldn't see it, or the, the referees back at Stockley Park is, <laughs> there's just a massive difference between actually... Making a challenge and contact on a player and contact yeah, exactly, and contact just happening while you're running. And to me, it was whether Pogba felt a little touch as he as he sort of, you know, his shin grazed or bounced off the defender. He's then pretty much tripped himself up. And I just I'm really struggling to cope with the fact that they cannot see it. Like to me, it's so obvious that. At times, as well, other players around the Premier League are actually—they're actually putting their legs into the challenge mm. to win the penalty.
2: I just- well, we saw that today, actually, the ZH—the uh, ZH one um, for Chelsea, where he sort of steps across, and Callum Wilson did the same thing. He yep. initiated the contact in the game uh, between Leicester and, um, and Newcastle, where he puts his leg across the defender, and 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 quite rightly, Robert Jones did not give. Uh, the penalty in that regard, that you, you're you a big, tall, solid centre-forward. How much contact would I need to inflict on you to knock you over?
4: Quite a lot. Quite a lot. I am big, you're right, and you're, Even if, you're quite and I, slight. I'm quite, I'm quite slight, but you know,
2: <laughs> if I was... Ru- I'm, I'm very small, yeah. Um, if I was running... He pace, looks like I, a borrower. All right, okay. Yeah, you could fit me in your pocket, yeah, Okay. Um but,
4: no, obviously- but I just I just think the thing for me is that I think I can certainly see it. I think fans can see it. So many people can see that forwards and I was part of this when I was playing are winning the penalties yeah. rather than rather than a tackle That's meaning the that they are fouled and and nobody wants to see it. Literally nobody wants to see it other than the team that gains the penalty at that time. But other than that I just I struggle with it. I really do. What do you think, Alex? I think it's
3: hard to feel sorry for Aston Villa when in Jack Grealish you've got the master faller in the Premier League.
4: Yeah, I agree. And, and I did the game against Chelsea um, a couple of days ago and right in front of us, it's, it's really obvious to see it live, him throwing his, his body and his legs. And I, I said he needs to be careful because he'll end up injuring himself, putting his legs into positions where really they shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean it's not 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 wanting to say Kettle and Pot
2: and Black, but Manchester United have been awarded forty-eight penalties in the last one hundred and thirty-nine games. That's
3: because they get a lot of players in the penalty area. They got a lot of fast players who are going to be brought down. <laughs> of course it is.
2: Uh right, because very cause talking about people who get a lot of penalties. Uh, Leicester City beat uh, Newcastle by uh, two goals to one. I thought uh, James Madison much better playing in that position where he can sort of float almost as a number 10 rather than being stuck out on a wing or uh, he's just starting to get a bit more rhythm about him now and he needs to get game time, he needs to get into his groove and he needs to get back to the, the James Madison of old. I thought I thought he was particularly impressive in the game against Newcastle, Dean.
4: Yeah, and I think he needs he needs that swagger, doesn't he? He needs to be playing games, he needs to be fit and, and he struggled at the start of the season because of the injury and I think the surgery he had um in the summer and I think he's only just starting to get back to that real sharpness that we know he can produce and you're right I think he does he wants to play in that number 10 role I think it suits him way more than when he plays out wide Mm. and he gives you a lot more threat when it whether it's playing Jamie Vardy down the sides or whether it's his goal threat from that position um and and it, it it was a better second half performance from Leicester and he was pivotal
3: Sam, you're someone with your ear to the ground when it comes to England. What chance of Madison Gate crashing the European Championship squad?
2: Not much, I don't think. Not much at all. And I think that's because... um, and I think he'll pick some players on form when it comes to the three games that they've got in March. But I think he has ignored Madison because, one, he didn't think he was playing very well in the autumn period, which is right. He was coming back from injury and hadn't really got in the Leicester team properly yet. I also think he's got a lot of players in those positions where Madison operates and it's going to be very difficult to dislodge those. I think he's got a big problem, Gareth Southgate, because there are a lot of players that are of a similar level of ability and whoever he doesn't take, if England don't win the European Championships, whoever he doesn't take will be made out as a national hero who could have saved the whole day if they were in the squad. So I think it's a very difficult position that he is in because I don't think that there is 23 outstanding players that you would select above all others. I don't think he's got a small pool anymore. We used to talk about how small the the England pool was. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think there's a lot of players that he's got to choose from, not many with much tournament experience, but certainly in terms of quality now, he's got a lot of players to pick from. And I just think that, um, that is going to be what's levelled against him when he gets to the summer, unless he wins the Euros, which is an eminent possibility. You never know. You never know um, We do happen. You, you think you do, because you just tell... You, it's very easy to predict that someone won't win a, a major tournament because not many people do. So that's like saying, you know, like, uh, he won't score today because there's usually not that many goals in a the game. Therefore, it's easier to predict who doesn't score rather than does. That's why they don't offer odds on that group. You got nothing to say that? Oh, yeah, you moved your microphone away. Sorry, you got like somewhere to be. Why are you wearing Perry Groves's shirt, by the way?
3: This is my Sunday afternoon stay-at-home T-shirt. Alright uh-huh. Okay. You People want to see what well, I've got on at the bottom? Or, no, I don't. No, or, no, no, or, no. Or, or not got on, as
2: nice <laughs> maybe. Uh. <laughs> very quickly. Uh, that's the end of the programme. Thank God for that. Uh, please uh, rate and review and download and please tell all your friends about the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. We'll be back later in the week where we've got a uh, big FA Cup preview to do. Um, I don't think we're going to do all 32 games, but we're certainly going to pick out some, uh, some, some big games to talk about going into the weekend. Uh, Dean, thank you very much. Great to hear from you again. Always a pleasure. See you soon, and Crook, uh, keep your ear to the ground. We know that the big transfers are about to uh, to be broken on Talksport, and you'll be the man behind the mic when
1: they do.
3: Absolutely, on Jim White's show every day between now and the end of the window.
2: Okay, good stuff. All right, so have a good rest of the uh, the week. Whatever you're doing, stay safe uh, and uh, try and keep out of trouble.